Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and everybody that's been sharing the podcast and supporting it. And, you know, I get so many messages from people online that they've been telling their friends about it. And uh, we really appreciate it. And we urge you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram, Kras Plus One, um, or wherever you listen to your podcast, you can tune in. So this past week for me has been completely life-changing. My son, Louis Kofi Krasno, was born last week, and uh, he's healthy. His mom is healthy. We are all sleepless but blissful around here. And uh, it's just, you know, completely life-changing, as I said. People talk about that experience and how you can't explain it, and just something happens to you that changes you forever, and it's absolutely true. He was named after my grandfather, Louis Krasno, and is the only boy in his generation in my family. My brother's got three girls, and my dad, as much as he would have been happy with any grandchild, he was very excited that Louis is a boy and that the Krasno name will continue. He's also named after Kofi Burbridge, who was one of my very close friends and a musical mentor to myself and many, many, many others. Um, he taught me so much about music, performing, and life in general. Uh, his birthday was just this past week as well. And I wanted to tell a little bit of a story about the name Kofi because we knew as soon as Lauren, my wife, was pregnant that we wanted to name him after Kofi, his middle name. But we didn't really fully know the meaning of the name. And uh, last Thursday, we went to the hospital and Lauren was in labor. And the labor was extensive, like 24 hours. But we thought he was going to be born Thursday night. And he kept pushing through the night, pushing through the night. Early Friday morning, he was born. So my mom called me on Friday once I told her he was born and his name. And she said, do you know what Kofi means? And I was like, well, we named him after Kofi Burbridge. And she was like, well, you know, I used to work with Kofi Annan in the UN. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, well, the name really means born on a Friday. So we were just kind of blown away that he pushed through the night and was born on a Friday. Louis Kofi Krasno, born to his mother, Lauren Krasno, who is a total superstar. And I just can't believe what she went through in those previous 24 hours. The level of pain is something that I'll never experience, and I don't think that I would be able to endure. But through this pain, she created what I've been calling perfection. And not because he looks perfect, although he's super cute, um, but because he's in a state that's completely fresh and new and everything he experiences, he experiences for the first time. Watching his senses develop, hearing Mozart for the first time, and his eyes just getting huge, and seeing the colors and taking him outside to see trees and breathing in the air and meeting our dog and meeting his grandparents and being around his cousins and just watching it all unfold in front of him with no preconceptions. It's just so pure. And it starts to rub off on me. And uh, I just get so excited to be around him. And even though we're not sleeping, every minute that I can be looking at him and holding him, 
just brings me at least closer to that place. Enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, it just feels like the place that we're always striving to be as humans. And it's where we originate. My brother, Jeff Krasno, wrote about it a bit in his weekly newsletter that I received this morning, and uh, he sums it up way better than I can. He says, to behold this unadulterated innocence in your arms is to understand that small is beautiful. This radiant, helpless creature, fresh from the oneness of the womb, is closer to God than I'll ever be, for he knows not the individuated self. He only knows connection. There will be a moment, probably in two years, when he will realize that he is not his mother. And some years after that, he will become painfully aware of his own mortality and that of his parents. This double-edged sword of consciousness will be unsheathed. He will spend the rest of his life wandering, searching for this condition that he now inhabits, free of the conceptual mind, just being in the everlasting now. That's my, my brother, Jeff. That's a small excerpt from his Commune Commusing newsletter. You can find the rest of it if you look him up on social media at Jeff Krasno and definitely check out his podcast, Commune with Jeff Krasno. I was really excited to hear about Randy Jackson wanting to be on the show. And uh, when I reached out to them, I started doing some research about him and I knew he was a great bass player and he had done a lot of production work, but was amazed at how much he had done in his career, playing on so many albums ranging from jazz, fusion, to pop music as a producer, as a songwriter, as an A&R guy for record labels. And uh, he has just a really inspiring career, especially to someone like me that loves all genres of music. And I love getting involved in so many different styles, whether it's jazz or pop or whatever. So I really got to learn a lot talking with him and tried to absorb uh, as much as I could from this conversation. Beyond being a great musician and a great arranger and a producer, he also just has an energy about him that lifts the spirit of the room. We had a great conversation and I'm really excited to get into it. First, I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media, who helps me put this podcast together. And they have a lot of other great shows and content. You can check them out at OsirisPod.com. I also want to give a shout out to Headcount. We had National Voters Day this past week and they've been getting hundreds of thousands of people to register to vote. If anybody has any questions about how to register or mail-in voting, go to headcount.org and they can answer any of your questions. Before we get into the episode, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Amazing bass player, legendary producer, arranger. He's been on TV, he's produced his own television shows, but most of all, he's a great dude. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Randy Jackson. I didn't realize you were from Baton Rouge for some reason. I didn't yeah, know you were man. a Louisiana guy. The dirty, dirty, dirty South. The dirty South, because I've spent a lot of time and I've worked with a lot of New Orleans musicians. One of my gigs that I've gotten to do in the last few years is work a lot with George Porter and Zigaboo and do like their the modern their version of 
the meters. I've gotten to learn all these meter songs and play with those guys and a lot of the Nevilles. So I, I, it makes sense, though, because listening to your playing and as a bass player, I, it's funny because uh, I, do, I dove into some Jean-Luc Ponty today for the first time in whoa, years. Whoa, whoa, back in the day, day. Damn. <laughs> Uh, but before we even get into that, I'm just curious what, you know, music was like in your household growing up, you know, like being in Baton Rouge, were, were your family, uh, were your parents musicians? Was that in your house? Not so much that, you know, music was in the church. My brother is a drummer. Right. So right. he teaches at Southern down there. My brother's played with everybody. Yeah. He's an incredible drummer. So I guess that helped me a bit. And just in the neighborhood growing up in the hood. Yeah. You know, bands would rehearse outside on the front porch. Right, right. And everybody would gather around. And, you know, it's like like neighborhood music, almost like a, a organic neighborhood block party right. without announcing it. You know what I mean? Right. So I love that, man. I, I actually missed that, but it was just very pure and very authentic. But right. some great, great musicians I mean, the people that I met growing up from Cannonball to like, oh, man. oh my God, dude, it's like, it's crazy. You know, all the Nevilles. Yeah. I love the other one, though. Uh, what was his name? The brother that played bongos. Oh, yeah, Cyril. Oh. Cyril's voice, voice, too, that man. Tenor. I feel like Cyril, voice. Cyril's voice. And he's actually on a lot of those Meters records as well. Yeah. He was kind of like the unofficial. Meter. I'm hearing his verse in Hey Pocky Way right now. Yeah, man. Little better boy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yo, man. Yeah, those but Yeah, guys. I grew up on all of that. Ernie Cato, all that oh, stuff yeah. in the South. Um, You know, grew up on that, but grew up loving Return to Forever. Grew up loving Zeppelin, Miles, Coltrane, James Brown, Beatles, Hendrix. So it was sort of a potpourri of... Things, if you will. Right. You know right. what I mean? But it was great, man. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I think it was the best time, best place to ever grow up. And playing bass, um, was so that was your first instrument, picking up the electric bass? Well, guitar was first, then yeah. it was bass, then saxophone, then bass, then piano, then bass. And so bass finally wound up being the one that I stuck with the longest. Right, right. So, and did you play bass yep. in church? Is that where... Did that a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, then I guess my first, I started playing on these records like John Fred and the Playboys, Irma Thomas. Oh, you played on Irma Thomas? Wow. Yeah. Um, Willie Hutch. Oh, yeah. Like all these old R&B, like, you know, joints with all these old guys. Um, yeah, man. I mean, you know, it was it was it was great. I mean, you know. I guess that was my first shot at doing something more prominent. That's so cool, man. I got to, I got to do a, a tour with Irma and work with her a bit. She's just, man, one of the greatest voices. But that whole Malico Jackson, Mississippi thing, that whole South at that time, with all the riches of the blues, funk, gospel, all converging, you know, man. I met yeah. Buddy Guy early on when I was just a kid. Yeah. And Junior Wells came up with those guys. And I still call him Uncle Buddy. You know, like it just, it just, you know, just pure. 
So how did that happen? How were you meeting all these people? Were you were were you were, were they coming through Baton Rouge or was that by by that time? They were coming, were, yeah, coming through town. And there was a bass player that I befriended that I took lessons from, right? Named Sammy Thornton. They played in a band called Big Bo Melvin and the Nighthawks. This guitar player. Ah, okay. They played a big box jazz guitar, like an L5 sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they were doing all the funk stuff, all the cover stuff, and. I used to take lessons from him and everybody came because they would back up everybody. Yeah. Syl Johnson, O.V. Wright. Oh, so then man. later on, I grew up and me and my brother and Henry Butler, another yes. jazz keeper player from I know, down there. Yeah, we, yeah. well, we had a trio where the trio, God rest his soul, and we used yeah. to back up everyone. Wow. Syl Johnson, O.V. Wright, Johnny Taylor, the Memphis Whaler. Man, you Anyone are like spelling out my, my, my record collection right now. <laughs> I was just listening to Joe Soul Tex. Johnson. Yeah. Joe Tex. Oh, yeah. Dude, all of that. Yeah. It was a guy that had Choking Con. Yep, yep. It was that guy. Oh, dude, all those records, man. The Real Ribs and Biscuits music, man. Yeah. How old were you at this point? Were you were you still like in high school or college at this point? 17, 18, 19. Yeah. Okay, and cool. then I went to college to Southern to study with Alvin Batiste because oh. he had the jazz program down there. And that's where I met Cannonball, Billy Cobham, which got what led me to the Billy Cobham band. Right. Um, and that's where I met Narda. And then Narda and I worked with Herbie. Yep. You know, just, just kept rolling. Yeah. So all know? through, all through, um, being at Southern and working with Alvin Batiste and meeting that crew. Yeah, man. And I mean, of course I knew everybody in town in LA. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in Baton Rouge or new Orleans. Right. Cause I was down there playing every weekend. Right. So you'd head into new Orleans and be part of that scene as well. Me and Brantford and Wenton, we all grew up together. Oh. Trombone shorty was just a kid. Yeah. I mean, we just, you know, you were, um, What's his face, Neville, when I had a band together? Art's son. Oh, you're talking about Aaron's son, Ivan, right? Ivan, yeah, Ivan. Yeah, Ivan's been on the show. He's he's a good friend, too. I love Ivan. Yeah, Ivan's amazing. Yeah. Uh, just that whole thing down there, man, just steeped in it. But I had a yearning to want to get out of there and take it somewhere else. Right, right. Because I was like, okay, got this, loved it, grew up with it, got it. Where else can I go? Where am I going next? And what was the gig that kind of took you on the road and then eventually obviously landed you in California? But was that was that working with Jean-Luc Ponty? Was that the first Billy Cobham. Billy Cobham. Billy Cobham band. Band. Yeah. And was that, yeah, that when was, was that? Was that around cuz I mean the album Spectrum changed my entire life by the way. Um well, it was and, after Spectrum, but this yeah. was like 70 Five seventy six, yeah, seventy seven, yeah, somewhere in there, yeah, man, right, right, seventy eight, uh, somewhere in there, right, right, crazy, in New York, in Toronto, on tour around the world, Montreux Jazz, yeah, you know, because I was a bit of the fusion head too, because you know I love Zeppelin and I love Return to Forever, and it's like jazz guys playing with Marshalls. Yes, love John love McLaughlin, love Miles on the corner. Yeah, I heard that. That turned my head around. Like three guitar players, 
Yeah. Three yeah. bass players, four keyboard players, two drummers. Like I was like, what? So all of that turned my head around. How long were you uh, in Billy's band? We did two albums and like three years worth of touring. So probably three years for the better part, three, four years. I mean, everywhere. I mean, then we toured with um, John Hammer's band. Oh, yes. We toured with John's band, a One Truth band, which was crazy with Al Shankar in it. Oh. And Al Shankar and John used to put their violins and guitars down. Right. And they would do this raga for 30 minutes with these tambourines and a chant. It was just mind-blowing. Wow. I mean, because, you know, ragas every four to eight to six bars subdividing. It was just, dude, crazy every night. And we all spent all day on the road with headphones on listening to nothing but Coltrane, Circular Breathe, yep. and play for like hours. Amazing. You know what I mean? That, that was, a, that, that, you know. That's, you know, so along with my rock and roll funk background, I love that too. Of course. You know what I mean? And did you always kind of, were you always into pop music as well? Were you, was your record collection completely mixed and? No, very mixed. I was into everything. I remember, I'm thinking now, flashing back on the band I was in right out of high school. I think my last year of high school called, um, what was it called? Something Sweet Pepper, Sweet Pepper Band or something or whatever. And we played nothing but Tower Power in Chicago yeah. and all that stuff. I'm hearing us playing Down to the Nightclub in my head right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff, man. Down to the Nightclub. Yeah. Oh, With my God, boards. dude. Man, and Rocco, Rocco, dude. Rocco and Garibaldi, that, that bass dude. drum connection. And the guitar nice. player with What Is Hip, that solo. Oh, yeah. Um, Conti, Bruce Conti. Dude, dude man. Yeah, like, that's one of the greatest solos, man. Dude, like, I mean, you know, like, I, you know. So I kind of came up with all of that, all of that pedigree. Right. So, and on the road, my latter tours with Jean-Luc, once I was playing with Jean-Luc, what really got me through those tours is I went to a show at Carnegie Hall in New York with a friend of mine to see Keith Jarrett live solo piano. Keith Jarrett got me through all those tours, man. Still one of my favorites today, one of the greatest musicians ever. Yeah. Keith Jarrett's solo piano, even the quartet stuff with DeJanette and Gary Peacock. Yeah. And, dude. And, of course, Bill Evans. Yeah. Oh, Bill Evans, man. I was just listening to him on those Miles records. I've been on a mile. I mean, everyone's always on a Miles Davis kick, but listening always. to him playing on those records. Someday my Prince will come. That intro on the piano just gives me chills every time. Dude, every I time. mean, like all the chord substitutions, the progressions, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just a different level, different level of musicianship, musicality. So I usually call jazz musicians the greatest musicians in the world. So people go, well, why do you say that? Not only do you have to play at the highest degree, they got to improvise at the highest degree. Hmm. While classical, you don't have to improvise like that. You're just playing the music on the page. Yes, you're interpreting the feeling and putting your own thing on it, but that's why at every music school, they teach giant steps. So how did you how did you transition? Um, I'm sure there, 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 there was 
a long period of time between these things, but to becoming a producer and working with more pop artists um, coming out of like the fusion world, what was what what kind of sparked that transition? I had done the fusion world, almost everything I wanted to do and accomplish. Yeah. And I felt myself yearning for bigger audience, more people trying to use my music to reach more people. I went to a Chuck Mangione show here in LA at the Santa Monica Civic because my friends were playing with him. And um, I think John McLaughlin's band was opening. And Narda and I were standing backstage. We'd met, but we hadn't really hung out and we started talking. And he said, hey man, I'm starting this production company up in the Bay. You know, trying to produce some records, get into the pop game. He said, you know, you should come up and check it out. Would you be down? I go, no, man. Yeah, it's time for a change. I need, I'm, I'm now on a mission, on my mission of the evolution of like what's next. Yep. So I went up there for a weekend and was up there for 13 years. Wow. Working with him. Yeah. Uh, Santana, the Journey Boys, um, this British band named Taxi, um, which led me into my more production thing. And Frankie Beverly and Mays. I mean, I was just, you know, becoming a session guy, doing a bunch of records. But the Taxi guys were working with this producer that I love named Tom Dowd. Of course, yeah. And the legendary Atlantic Records with Armored Ergen and everybody with Aretha Martin, with Aretha, with Ray Charles, with, I mean, Ray, I mean, he did the Bee Gees, he did Rod Stewart, everything. So also like also the Allman Brothers, Tom Dowd and all of that. Yeah. I mean, Tom Tom was also uh, a legend in terms of changing the recording game. Just, uh, like the technology and, you know, I, well, I think he was behind like changing the way the faders worked and things yeah. like that. I, I've, I've done some research, research on him in the past and I was just blown away at the different levels uh, or different things I that was he brought such, to the game. such a big Almond Brothers fan growing oh, yeah. up. I mean, I listened to Not My Cross to Bear the other day. Yeah. And I'm just like, that guitar solo, man. Yeah. Oh my God, dude. Yeah. Dude. That's, That's why Derek Trucks is one of my favorite guitar players in life. Me too. Me too. Dude, look, man. It's Derek Trucks guy. Dude. I mean, there's a lot of guys. I love Eric Gales. Yeah. I love that guy. Kingfish, Christoph Kingfish. Yeah, yeah. Um, dude, there's so many great players, but um, yeah, so what Derek's done I, with the slide, man, it's just it's uh dude, he really sounds it. like a saint. He actually he's been on the show and he's a good good friend. Um he's he def, definitely one of my favorites ever. One of my Yeah, favorites. man, he's amazing. But yeah, so I was working with Nardo who was getting into the production, he was producing. So I was sponging off learning a lot from him and we were making all these records. And you know, Whitney Aretha, Sister Sledge, what you name it. But also, I love Tom Dowd from the other side. So he says to me, um, so what do you want to do? You want those music school guys, huh? 
I go, yeah, I don't know if that's a diss or I just played on these three songs with this band from England, but okay. I said, well, man, you played great. You know, love having you here, whatever. I said, well, you know, someday I think I want to be a producer. Ah. I said, man, you know, I'm inspired by a lot of the work you've done. I've been following you for years. He said, yeah. So I said, well, what, you know, I was about to walk out. I said, well, what tips can you, if you pardon me, what some more tips can you give me? He said, well, pick up the Billboard magazine really quick. Pick it up and look at it. He said, look at the top 10. Now look at the top 20. You like anything you see that you, you know. I said, well, oh, it's cool. I don't really like much of this, though, but it's cool. He says, it's your first lesson. That's what I thought you were going to say. All the musician people go past the music. <laughs> so you got to figure out why people are paying attention to this and listen to it and how to apply that to your own works so they listen to your stuff like they're listening to this. He said, I hope you hate everything you hear. It's not whether you like it or not. You got to figure out why that's working and how can I get mine to work like that? Interesting. I go, man, I love you for saying that. No one's ever been that real about it and honest about it. I would love to pick your brain. I swear I won't beg you or overload you or overwhelm you. But man, if I could please get your number, I'll forever be indebted. So this lasted for a long time. God rest his soul, one of the greatest ever. Yeah, And I mean, because... I needed somebody to explain it to me in more terms that I could really understand and get. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I played all the records, loved all the records, but that simplicity and also paying attention to the lyric, the melody more of what it was saying. Why did people resonate with these songs? Right. Why do you love up on Cripple Creek by the band? Why do you love that record? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Why do you love Soul Live? Why do yeah. you, like, what is happening in there that's creating this? You know what I mean? That was a, that's an interesting way to put it. Because, you know, I do struggle, and I, I'd like to ask you this too, with, you know, appreciating what's in the top 10 right now, for example. <laughs> As you said, <laughs> however, all of us musos, all of us musos always do. You I know. know. But there's always a reason why people are listening to this music and why, like you said, why it's resonating with young people right now. So I I do try to listen. You know, there's some of it I just I just that's just beyond me. But uh, I try to listen to what's popular and really get into it and understand it because there's always a reason. There's no artist on Earth that just falls into the number one position. You know what I no. mean? There's always hard work there. There's always talent there, you know? Exactly. There's al- there's even though people so- are saying, even though a lot of people think that you can buy it, eh, you can't really buy the number one. No, <laughs> no. You might buy, be able to buy like the ability to put something out, but for it to yeah. rise to the top. Also, you know, you know how it is. You put your phone on or whatever that you're flooded with new music because everyone has a studio now and there's no real gatekeepers or not as not like the way it used to be. So to actually get my attention right now, um, because I'm flooded with so much music, there's got to be a reason for it to be 
to, to rise to wherever it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're right. There's always a reason. And one of the things I loved and hated about YouTube is that anybody anywhere could put their music up. But the fact right. that anybody anywhere could put their music up and there was no arbitra of taste saying, yo, dig this. This shit right here is hot. Yep. Not listen to boatloads of crap before you get to one sort of decent or hot thing. Right. But I think um, if we go through our life with the utmost open mind and open hearts, of course, and we really listen to the song, we could probably figure out why it's resonating. Let's take WAP by Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B. (laughs) That is resonating because of the lyric. Of course. Because girls saying that very crude and honestly, like, I don't care what you're thinking. I know what this is. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you broke it down for the dudes too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's got a good beat. So you think about making the stallion savage. Yeah. The beat is hot. You got her, you got her and Beyonce on the remix. And they're breaking it down. It's like, you know, Mad Max beyond the Thunderdome and Mad Max is just a, it's what everybody at Burning Man is trying to create or recreate. Yep, yep. So, you know what I mean? It's, you know, but you can see why that worked. You know, an undeniable beat. Yeah, there's a couple sample chords, but nobody out in the public is thinking about what sample, what chords are, if it's splice or some other <laughs> form of what they don't care. Yeah, yeah. They don't care about anything you and I think about. Right. They either right. like it or they don't. And they half of the time they don't know why. We used to do research when I did A and R. I did A and R for twenty years. We do these research groups. Right. These focus groups. And we go, Why don't you like it? They go, I don't know, I just don't like it. So we'd have to sit there afterwards and go, what do you think turned them off about? It? You don't like the beat. You don't like what it's saying. You don't like them. I mean, you know, like, we'd sit there and scratch our heads because we're about to put these records out. And do you think there was rhyme or reason to that? Or did, did you did you come to any conclusions during during these sessions? Or was it pretty as hard a producer, to... Yeah. As a producer, I would put my hat on. Right. And as a songwriter, I would put my hat on and go... What have I learned in all this time being a producer and a writer to date? Right. <laughs> if you and I have something good. Yeah. And we think it could be great and we play it for people and they don't get it. You know, the first thing I'm going to say to you is what Mutt Lang said about all of his records. One of the greatest pop producers ever. Yeah. Outside of Max Martin, even though Mutt Lang did ACDC, Foreigner, Billy Ocean, yeah. Doobie Brothers, Shania Twain, yeah. Def Leppard. I'm yeah. going to say, yo, we better start over. They ain't getting it. Yeah. So if we bake a pie and they eat the pie and they got a frown on their face, we go, this pie ain't right. Yeah. So as a producer, I didn't, I failed at my job because they didn't get it. Right. So as a writer, I failed because they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. Because it should be like yesterday. That's why one of my favorite songs in life is Let It Be. Yeah. It is so simple. They say Let It Be nine times in the chorus. Yeah. No other words. <laughs> it's words of wisdom, Let It Be, Let yeah. It Be. I mean, genius. 
Yeah. Stop in the name of love. So simple. Yeah. Got it. I don't have to wonder what the chorus is. I don't have to think what it is. Because I'm always now as a listener looking for the part I'm going to sing along with. What's what's that melody I'm going to remember? Yep. Is it memorable? Do we make a lasting impression on you? If we didn't, us as writers and producers have failed. Right. To me. Because if we want that number one, it's got to go down like a drink of smooth water. If it doesn't, what are we doing? <laughs> I'm hearing in my head, right? Sam and Dave, hold on. I'm coming. Yeah. That's so Simple. crazy. That was one of the ones that popped in my head. That's really weird. And keep on, ho- keep on simple. holding on. Yeah. Funky. Yes. But simple. I mean, dope as hell, but simple. I mean, when you think about, Hey, Pocky way, yeah. I remember seeing them play that song for literally 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the crowd wouldn't stop dancing <laughs> and singing along. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? From the piano thing to the like, and the claps on three. Oh my God! I live for those claps on three, yo. <laughs> oh it is my classic. God! It is oh classic. my, I do. I mean, like, dude. I mean, it don't get no better. And that New Orleans pocket is is like nothing else, dude. Mm. That's why like Whipping Post or Midnight Rider. When you think throughout history of any of these iconic songs, yep. they all had that. I got one more silver dollar. Yeah. Dude. Classic. Dude. Dude. What? B.B. <laughs> King, the yeah. thrill is gone. Yeah. Need we say more? What's the song about? The thrill is damn gone. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to decipher and figure. Now, on the fusion side, it's a different thing. So it's weird for me because I come from the most difficult thing with the black page of 17 pages of each song. It's a suite. Yeah. A eight-section suite to, like, you know, pop music. But I, I wanted to reach the masses. I wanted to reach people. But that goes to show that it's 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 that is so par- – even if you are able to play all the notes in the world – the ones that are going to be the most effective are those ones that are going to hook you in and that simple melody, you know? We used to say, I used to play in Jeff Lover's band, and we used to talk about it all the time. B.B. King kills everybody with one note. Yeah. 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 We got to figure that out, son. We got to figure. <laughs> I know we got all these billions of notes and fifteen times signatures, and but what is that one note? Yeah, well, BB will shut you right up. He'll play one note, and you, and it's it's that that vibrato and that soul and that feeling, you know. Dude, man, I'm saying, dude. We were talking I'm about s- that the other day. Yeah, I was talking to Derek about it, and it's like it's also with BB. It's those notes in between. He's playing. It's all of like getting there or not quite getting there. You know what I mean? To lead you to that one note. (laughs) Yeah, because it hurts, man. It hurts. You know, hurts so good, man. Hurts so good. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors.
I gotta ask real quickly how you linked up with the Journey guys too, because I know you you recorded with them. Did you you toured with them as well? Toured with them for a couple of years. Yeah. Made a couple albums. Ghosted on a couple albums. Um, I met them basically through Steve Smith, the drummer who was a good friend of mine at the yeah. time, because we had a band with Tom Coster, keyboard player from Santana co-wrote Europa and all those big hits. Oh yeah. And we had a pickup band playing around the Bay Area that was a fusion band. Right. Joaquin Lieveno, who's a guitar player, Jean-Luc and I, Steve and Tom had this quartet and we'd make these records and play around town. And, you know, we'd do our fusion thing just on the side from all the pop or whatever stuff we were doing. Um, so Steve played with us. So then... I met Neil because then Neil joined us and played in those bands as well. Right. And then I met Steve and the rest of the guys. And, you know, we became friends and pals and, you know, it just kind of organically grew. Then Neil and I were in our a little pickup band with, man, uh, around town with those guys. And then I started a thing with Carlos where check out this pickup band that we used to play benefits for Bill Graham. Yeah. Bob Weir, Jerry Garcia, myself, Carlos Santana, Armando Peraza, um, um, keyboard man from Tower Power. What's his name? Chester. Chester, wow. Tony Williams on drums. Wow. Wayne Shorter and Joe Henderson. What That's a crazy. crazy band. It was a crazy... That's like, like every genre in one band. All dude, <laughs> it was like... That's amazing. I mean, it was a crazy wild. I was just tripping on it. Just think about that just now. But yeah, you know, I met those guys who became good friends. And, you know, they were going in, making new records. Perry had left the band. Hey, man, do you want to... You come by and tell us what you think is wrong with this stuff. I've been in the studio trying to make this record start working. Uh, I go by and listen to some stuff and, you know, give my two, three cents. Like from two weeks later, they come and say, look, why don't you come in and play? Because I'd ghosted on Frontiers yeah. on, I think, two or three songs. And, um, yeah, it was, so it started organically like that. Right. You know, and I mean, I was a session guy because I was coming down to L.A. and doing that in the Bay working on a ton of records from Dylan, the Springsteen, the Billy Joel, the Elton to like Lionel Rich. I mean, I was just, you know, you're a session guy. You was playing right. sessions. Right. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's how it all transpired. What was the first production gig <clears throat> that you, that you remember that kind of changed the game for you? I was with Narda Michael Walden he had a sister-in-law that was a singer, married to his brother, Wanda. Okay. And I made a record with Wanda uh, back in the day. And that was the first production, like proof that I could really do this. She had sort of a minor regional hit. And that was my first taste at it. So I just rolled it on from there. Me and Preston Glass did a bunch of productions. Yeah. This group from the UK danced like a mother. We did, we did, you know, we started doing a lot more productions. 
as a producer, were you playing bass on on these records as well, or like was because a lot of people you know that are listening might question, and this is something I talk about on the show a lot, is like what a producer does <laughs> the very broad well, question, and you know, so I'd sometimes like to clarify, you know whether you were you know playing playing on these records doing a lot of arranging helping with the writing um i i think the answer is probably that it changes for each project but i'm curious on some of these earlier ones like were you playing and arranging you know putting the musicians together like what did it entail for the most part on the early ones i was playing and producing right but the last eight years or so ten years or so I would have other people come in and play yep. just so I could stay in one head yeah, and really view the music from 10,000 feet up and go, yeah, the vibe is not right. And definitely coach the guys into it and play like this. But Quincy Jones said to me once, and I developed a pretty good phone book, yeah, uh, knowing who to call for what vibe. Right. So I would test myself. Did I call the right people? Because I shouldn't have to say much to them. I should play them this demo and I go, got it. So I kind of started it like that. And I had Chris Cheney. I had, man, so many people come and play. Sonny Thompson is one of my favorites. Oh, I love Sonny. Who yeah. Prince. Yeah. Uh, I had Michael Bland come and play drums, that whole Prince rhythm section, you know. Um, but I love Sonny because he's so musical. Yeah. He's a writer, great guitar player, and great bass player, Todd Prince. Yep. And, you know, like he played bass like he was humming a line, you know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah here we yeah. go. <laughs> Put I, that sauce Because I it. love all the grease. Yeah. I love all the grease in the sauce. Yeah. That's yeah. why CV Wonder's bass player is one of my favorites to this day. Yeah. You know, like, you know. Yeah, Nathan Watts. Detroit, yeah. Dude, all the grease, dude. Oh, uh, yeah. that's what I that's what I need, dude. Yeah, and yeah. quiet as kept. KO, the bass player in the deal, had it too. Okay. Okay. Dude, that guy definitely had it. Yeah, probably still got it. But you know, all of that, you know, like what song am I hearing in my head right now? My boy from ATL that played that great line and that outcast song. So fresh and so clean. clean. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a classic. Yep. <laughs> Well, sometimes those lines are what what dictates the the melody or or like the hook of of the song. You know what I mean? James Jamerson, man, it's like you listen to that Motown stuff, and without those bass lines, it's hard to imagine. Jamerson, Jamerson, and Chuck Rainey, two of my favorites in yeah. life. In fact, I studied with Chuck wow, when I was yeah. in high school. I got the opportunity. But listen, that like I'm hearing in my head another great bass line is woman's gotta have it oh yeah bobby womack bobby womack dude yeah. that bass line is crazy yeah love oh that my god dude oh my god i love that i do you know so i'm a sucker for all of that yeah you know what i mean a yeah. great bass line so but I, i'm a sucker for great players just in general yeah there's a lot of I, I use a lot of church guys a lot um my boy, uh, Ron, nephew, Feimster. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love Ron, too. Yeah, he's a, yeah. yeah I, I, I work with him. I manage him, actually. Oh, cool. And I use him a lot. I use Agape, Eric yeah. Walls. Oh, yeah. I mean. I love Walls, too. Uh, dude, I mean. I played with both of them. 
this other guy that puts me in the mind of Spanky Alfred, Mighty Clouds of Joy. The guy he's playing guitar with John Mayer right oh, now. Oh, Sharky. Uh, yeah, man. I love Dude, Sharky. Isaiah, Isaiah Sharky. Sharky. It's all oh, my Such a beast. God. Oh, yeah, when I heard God. Sharky, I thought it was Spanky. For those of you guys Dude. out there that don't know, you know, Spanky, they both, well, you know, because Sharky played on the D'Angelo stuff. Um, and I was in the studio listening to some of those mixes, and I was like, oh, you got, is, this, is this old from the from when Spanky was around? And Russ, the engineer, is like, nah, man, you got to hear this kid, Sharky. This was like 10 years ago or something. And he's dude, just look. unbelievable. Dude, that guy, dude. Yeah. Dude, Sharky, wherever you at, holler at us, man. <laughs> I got to get Sharky on the show. Last time I was in Chicago, he came and sat in with my band, actually, my trio. He just blew the doors off, man. Dude, that guy is, dude, I'm saying, bro. Yeah. But I'm saying, I Nasty. love great players. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like yourself, like Soul Live. That's why I love Soul Live. I was so, I was actually happy you guys were on that show. Yeah. You guys and Rance Allen. Oh, man, Rance Allen, yeah. Dude, because yeah. I love gospel, you know. It's like the highlight for me, you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, you know, the the church kids, you know. Yeah. The City of Refuge boys here in L.A. with B-Dub playing bass. You know, Goppy's in that band. Yeah. You know, the church boys, man. And uh, so, so you're producing records at this point, and... What was the transition like from there to becoming like a record guy and an A&R guy? And once again, it's evolution, you know, yeah. like uh, I'd been playing a lot and I think I'd burn out as being a session player. I know it's weird to say, but yeah, I either needed to go back on the road, which I didn't want to do. And because um, I'd started a family and all that. So I was like, I need to do something else. A friend of mine was like, man, you ever think about getting into A&R? I was like, no. I usually hated most A&R people, still kind of do. Yeah. Because I blame them for the good and the bad music. Because <laughs> <laughs> somebody's got to sign it and put it out. Right, right. Um, so, um, you know, but it's a tough gig, and I decided to jump in, feet first, once again, which, you know, led me 20 years later to Idol. Right which was another leap of faith because, you know, music on TV with TV shows is kind of corny. It doesn't really work. Yeah. And everybody laughed at us when we started it and hated the idea and it worked. And that helped to lead me on my journey through the TV world. And I had America's Best Dance Crew on and, you know, years later it led me through my weight loss journey and my health journey. And I studied Unify Health Labs. So, right. you know, it's like been a real big evolution. And and being an A&R for a label, like there was, did you did you enjoy that? Did you find joy in, in kind of developing artists and, and putting out these you know, records? The first couple of months, the first year was really hard because yeah. I thought I understood it, but I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. It's like saying to the guy with the broken right leg, and that's the leg that you use in favor, I know how you feel. <laughs> no, right. you really don't. Right. So I learned a tremendous amount. Um, man, I learned a lot. There was a lot I didn't know, a lot I didn't understand. But I was at an open mind and I sponged off of it and just took note, took heed. And man, it was an education and a half. It's irreplaceable. 
because you got a chance to put records out, sign things, put it out to see if it worked. Yeah. If it didn't work, the only person you could fault is yourself once again. Yeah. The A&R person, the producer, the songwriter. Why'd you choose that song? You don't know this artist and people didn't pay attention to it. I guess they didn't like it. So you got to backpedal and figure out why didn't they like it and what are they yeah. going to like? Did it did it give you further appreciation for um, label folks and A&R people? You know, that, yeah, and yeah. it also taught me how hard the job is. Yeah, Not easy, bro, not easy. And uh, I gained a lot of appreciation, learned a lot, a lot of awareness. And, you know, Idol was another big marketing thing. Yeah, You could say something on the air and you could see if people responded or agreed with you. Yeah. Or called you an asshole or thought you were a freak or whatever. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You could just see. Who brought that? Who brought the um, the idol idea to you initially? It was a huge show in the UK called Pop Idol. Right. And um, my buddy who has been my friend forever and my agent for a long time, Jeff Frasco, at CAA had picked the show up for state's representation. He brought it to me and said, man, would you ever do something like this? <clears throat> and I say, listen, ordinarily no, but man, I'm looking to see what else I want to do. I'm just like, I don't know how much longer I can do the A&R thing. I don't know. Right. Like, I'm, I, I don't know. I think I've reached my, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, so then I met with Simon Kyle. We sat and we were chopping it up because we're both A&R guys. And, you know, Paula joined and Seacrest and Dunkelman and the rest, as they say, is history. Did you ever see it becoming as big as it became when you guys were in the beginning stages? Never knew. I thought one of two things were going to happen. Either it was going to fail miserably or be huge. Couldn't call it. Yeah. But it was going to be the one or the other. It wasn't going to be an in-between. I knew that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I went out on faith once again. Right. Try it. You might like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might work. I mean, there's how many spinoffs and different versions and different things have, have come from it. It's, it's unbelievable. It changed the game. And you know what's kind of interesting, too, is, you know, it incorporated some things that you may not even realize. I mean, like, um, you know, I, what you see now is you see so many influencers, you know what I mean? And you see so many people, you know, backing different artists. And like, we kind of, this goes back to what we said in the very beginning. It's like, there's such a, a huge ocean of music out there that you kind of need like tastemakers, you know, to find, to, and and that that helps define what's cool, you know what I mean? With with the show, you know, you, there was obviously what you guys were doing, but then people voting, you know, from the masses, and it there it kind of opened things up, you know, to for people to be able to kind of promote the artists that they felt, you know, and uh, you know, I think in a certain way that relates to to how we find music right now, you know. Of course, of course. We were the first to open that up. Yeah. And also to try and give you a chance to look at it with a little bit more of a critical eye. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah, also, I mean, the first of its kind. Yeah. And also just seeing what the process is like a little bit and how hard it can be to perform or to be an artist, you know? 
Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, it definitely, it was transformative in so many ways, really, honestly. Yeah. We didn't know it at the time, but, um, you know, it was definitely, definitely something good. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about um, Unify Health Labs, and I wanted to get into that a little bit because coming from the the music and touring world, you know, music and health don't always go hand in hand. <laughs> and no, I know they usually don't. <laughs> and I know that you have spent a lot of time in the last few years um, on your own health, but also promoting health and um, you know, creating products, but also just, um, creating awareness. Uh, and I'm just curious, like what, what drew you to that and what, what were the, what well, that process I was living like? a very successful, but unhealthy life. Right. And, um, I developed type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I needed help and I, had a disease that was incurable, but you could manage it. I tried every diet, every gym, everything, whatever. Went through all of this stuff. You know, nothing quite worked. At least I couldn't make those things work because I needed something that was going to jumpstart. I had gastric bypass about four years after being diagnosed. I went on this journey after that of trying to figure out what in the hell am I going to do to keep the weight off, to try and get better, to really change my life and my relationship with food, diet, and exercise? Talked to a bunch of doctors, had a bunch of doctors, really went to work on it, gained a bunch of wisdom, gained a bunch of knowledge, and said, you know what? Now, finally, I think I got a handle on this. So what do I got to do? I got to pay this forward. I got a bunch of my doctors, a bunch of healthcare professionals, a bunch of other doctors I didn't know, nutritionists and everything. We came together and put together a plan because I wanted to start Unify Health Labs. And I said, look, I want to give back to people everything I've learned that simplifies it for them to help to try and get their health and their gut in check because every disease, everything starts in the gut. So that's a big key to everything. So this is what I did. And, you know, by the grace of God, it worked and it's working. I talk to people all the time that it's helping and we're going to keep paying it forward. It's like, it's on my mission to get everybody's gut healthy or at least thinking about, at least thinking about a healthy gut. Cause that's the new wealth. You got a healthy gut. You can probably do anything. You can play guitar like yourself or John McLaughlin or whoever it is you want. (laughs) Unfortunately, in our society, a lot of people treat health backwards. You know, they get medicine to treat um, illnesses when really going to the root of it, like you said, and and what you put in your body is going to really dictate your health more than anything, right? Yes. Yes. hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, so, you know, I mean, we started this journey a while ago. Uh, I mean, even now we got, if you go to unifyhealthlabs.com, we got Unify 25, give people 25% off with this coupon code. I just want people to at least try it. And I think they'll start to feel better because, you know, the, the leaky gut syndrome that happens, 
people not even aware that that's a part of their life or could be making them lethargic, tired, not feel well. I mean, man, you got to, that diet is crazy, bro. Yeah. You know, we always reach out of mental whatever, out of fear for the bad things. Let me eat my feelings. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever, fear, whatever. And is there like a specific, do you, do you, uh, are you, do you subscribe to like a plant-based diet or, or anything like that or just clean in general? I just go clean in general. Yeah. I go, I don't believe in telling myself that I have to do one or the other now that I've been vegan, yeah. been vegetarian, been pescatarian. I've been every diet you can imagine, yeah, fasted, yeah. intermittent fasting. Yeah. Figure out what's going to work for you. Just stick to it, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. That's the hard part. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> a behavioral psychology therapy that tries to get you there. Got to change the way you see it. Yeah. Because therefore, true. like Tom Dowd did to me as a producer, I got to change the way you're looking at the top of the charts for yeah. you to start to understand the top of the charts. Absolutely. Hello. Hello. There it is. Anything musical right now that you're working on that you're excited about? Manage a bunch of writer producers, um, working on there's a new journey record we're working on presently right now. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, you may hear a single here in the next couple of months. Um, you know, working on a couple of other side projects, another band project with a couple of people, you know, just, uh, but I manage eight, nine writer producers. So, and a handful of artists. So we, we keep pretty busy on the musical side. Beautiful thing, man. Well, I hope to hear all of, or at least some of these projects, man. And uh, now we got to stay in touch, man. Now that I know you're you, yeah. dude, what's going on, man? Yeah, man. Well, I, hopefully, I'll get you back on, and we'll talk more. All right, let's get it, brother. Let's get it. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, man. All right, see you later. All right, thanks, Randy. I want to thank Randy Jackson for being on the show. So cool to talk with him and learn from him and just be around him. So for the outro song today, I'm going to actually go deep and pick out a deep cut from a Jean-Luc Ponty album that Randy played bass on. This is from the album Civilized Evil, and the track is called Demigomania.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.